Well, hello. We are excited to have you as a part of our teaching time today. Unfortunately, we are not having a public gathering this weekend. And out of an abundance of caution and concern over the potential spread of COVID, we decided to pause our service for this week only. We're making a determination in the days ahead about January the 3rd. And so we are hopeful and expectant that we will gather together for corporate worship on January the 3rd. Ken will be leading in our teaching time. I will be away. And so we look forward to what Ken will share with us in a week or so. So this morning, we, today we, can, we return back to the Gospel of Luke. And we're looking at a series of messages that relate to the birth of Christ from a little bit of a different perspective. Today we're going to look at specifically the presentation of Jesus at the temple. So, so far we've looked at the announcement of Jesus' birth given to a virgin by the name of Mary who was engaged to a man by the name of Joseph. And this announcement was given by the angel Gabriel. And Gabriel told Mary that the Holy Spirit was going to overshadow her and she would conceive and give birth to a son and he would be called the Son of the Most High God and he will assume the rule of the throne of David and that his kingdom would have no end. Now these are pretty weighty words for an unmarried teenage girl who understood the impossibility of what she was hearing, but nonetheless her response to this amazing announcement was very simply, may it be done to me according to your word. And of course we know that that is exactly what had taken place. She gave birth to Jesus in the little town of Bethlehem, as the prophet Micah had foretold. And in our time last week, we looked at how the sovereignty of God ruled over the hearts of the most powerful men in all the world, the emperor of Rome, who ordered that a census be taken. This census is what was used to bring Joseph and this very pregnant Mary to Bethlehem, where she would, in just a short period of time, give birth to Jesus. The one called the Son of the Most High God, the Holy Child, was not born in a palace. He was not born in the home of royal dignitary. He was born in a place that was designed to house animals in a cold, smelly, dungeon-like atmosphere. The King of Kings and the Lord of Lords was born exactly as it was foretold. We would read in the book of Philippians that he humbled himself, taking on the form of a man, and in his lonely human, lowly human position, he took upon himself the fulfillment of God's eternal plan of redemption. The little baby in the manger in Bethlehem would return to nearby Jerusalem in about 30 years to begin his public ministry, and then a short time after that to die upon the cross. In our passage today, we're going to look at the presentation when Jesus was brought to the temple for his, circum, excuse me, for his presentation to the priest, his consecration, and we'll hear the words of a faithful, godly priest. And again, Mary would be in awe of everything that she heard. And we'll look today now in Luke, 20, Luke 2, 21 through 35. A lengthy passage that's going to have two major points in our outline. Verse 21 begins, And when eight days had passed before a circumcision, his name was then called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days for their purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens a womb shall be called holy to the Lord. 
and to offer a sacrifice according to what was said of the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took him into his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you prepared in the presence in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. And a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Well, as I said, we're going to see this passage of Scripture in two major points of outline. The number one is this, is fulfilling the law. In this fulfillment of the law, there are three facets that we're going to see here. The first one is this, number one, circumcision. Verse 21a, and when eight days had passed before his circumcision. So the law prescribed that every male Jew was to be circumcised On the eighth day, this was a requirement that was originally given to Abraham all the way back in Genesis 17, verse 10, when God said, this is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Now, circumcision was a sign of the covenant that God made with Abraham. Not only did it mark the Israelites, as a different people from all the rest of the world, through circumcision, the removal of the foreskin is a reminder of the depravity of man and of the need for spiritual cleansing. There wasn't anything magical. There wasn't anything super special about the act of circumcision. It simply was an indication of man's need for spiritual cleansing. The physical ritual did not bring about their salvation, but it is just a reminder of their need for cleansing. We read in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may Live. So there is a spiritual circumcision that is necessary to bring about this spiritual cleansing, but circumcision is an indication of the need for spiritual cleansing. Now, some ask the question why did Jesus need to be circumcised? After all, he was not a sinner, he was conceived in the womb of a virgin by the Holy Spirit. He did not inherit man's sinful nature. So why was, why was it that he needed this sign for spiritual cleansing? Well, the answer to this is found in recognizing that Jesus came to fulfill the law. He was not bound by the law in terms of his need to fulfill it or his need to live up to it, 
But Jesus, in fact, came to fulfill the Mosaic law as given by God to Moses. We read in Galatians 4.4, But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. So like His baptism, Jesus' circumcision served to fulfill all righteousness. We read in Matthew 3, 13-15, when Jesus came to John for baptism, then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered, answering said to him, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted Jesus to be baptized. And then like David, Jesus would be able to say, as we would read in Psalm 40, verse 8, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is written within my heart. So Jesus didn't have a need for circumcision because of an inherited sinful nature. Jesus simply came to obey the law of God and in His living and in His obeying, He was able to perfectly fulfill God's law. Only Jesus perfectly fulfilled God's law throughout His life and only because He did so could His righteousness be credited to believers through their faith. At the cross, God treated Jesus as if he had lived the sinful lives of mankind. Therefore, in our union with Christ, God is able to treat us as if we had lived the perfectly righteous life of Christ. So there is this trade that takes place. Jesus lives the perfect life so that we could inherit that sinless righteousness, and yet God treated Jesus as if He was filled with sin so that we could be spared of paying the penalty for our own sin. Now one of the curious things to me about this is why did God prescribe the eighth day for this circumcision to to take place? Well, in God's omniscience, we know today that a newborn baby does not have the ability for his blood to coagulate until there is a sufficient production of vitamin K. And that production of vitamin K takes place on the eighth day. Had God prescribed the circumcision to take place any earlier, or had this been a rule passed down by man, a circumcised baby would have had no ability for his blood to coagulate and very likely could bleed to death because of the craziness of the rule that was passed down. But God, who is sovereign, God, who is omniscient, prescribed the circumcision on the eighth day, knowing that it took that long for this baby's blood to coagulate on its own. In our hospitals today, an infant is given an injection on the first or second day of life to speed up the coagulation of blood, and so now newborns are are circumcised on the second or third day, and there is no risk to them bleeding out. This is not a coincidence. God knew exactly what he was doing, and in his omniscience prescribed to Abraham and then through Moses that these newborn baby Jewish boys would be circumcised 
on the eighth day. So the first part of the fulfillment of the law is the circumcision. The second part is the naming. Verse 21b, his name was then called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Now, naming a child at circumcision was not prescribed in the Mosaic law. Naming of a child typically took place immediately after birth. But it's believed that in this era, in this part of Jewish life, that naming a child was paired with circumcision, and some believe that it was paired with circumcision because Abraham's name was changed from Abram to Abraham on the day of a circumcision. So this could have been applied into Jesus' time of living. There really isn't any, cl- any clarity on why this was so. But the same sequence is also found in Luke chapter 1 when John the Baptist was named on the day of a circumcision. He is given, and of course Jesus is given the name Jesus, just as Gabriel had instructed. And Jesus is the Greek name for the Hebrew name Joshua, which means Yahweh saves. He was not to be named after a relative, nor was he to be named after some other important person, but Jesus was going to be given the name that would dictate his mission, and that is to save mankind from their sin. The third thing that we see in the fulfillment of the law is the purification. Now this should be understood as Joseph and Mary's commitment to fulfill the law, and none of this should be passed on into what we're going to see in letter B on to the baby Jesus. So letter A in this purification is the mother's cleansing. Verse 22a says, when the days for their purification according to the law of Moses were completed. Now the plural use of there is applied to the family unit, Joseph and Mary and Jesus, although the specifics of this purification or this cleansing was only applied to Mary. It was necessary for there to be a ceremonial purification before the child with the family could be presented at the temple by the parents. Now this ceremonial cleansing was prescribed as a part of the Mosaic Law in Leviticus 12, verses 3 and 4. And it says, On the eighth day the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised, which has already been accomplished. Then she shall remain in the blood of her purification for 33 days, She shall not touch any consecrated thing, nor enter the sanctuary until the days of her purification are completed. So at this time, when Joseph and Mary are bringing Jesus to the temple, as a part of this fulfillment of the law, 40 days have passed. That's what it would take for the ceremonial cleansing to be completed. So this is now 40 days after Jesus was born, and the purpose of this purification before one could be ceremonial clean is a reminder of the need for cleansing from sin just like circumcision. It had nothing to do with the woman. It had nothing to do with her perceived worth in society. It is simply spiritual symbolism that before the woman and this family unit could bring this firstborn child into the temple for his setting apart 
She had to go through ceremonial cleansing, and it indicates the seriousness with which the Jewish people should be aware of their need for spiritual cleansing. So we see this ceremonial cleansing as it relates to Mary, the mother, and in letter B, the child's sanctification. So in Jewish law, the word sanctification means something different from what you and I would understand it as Christians in the 21st century. Sanctification means to be set apart. It means to be holy to the Lord. We see in verse 22b and 23, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. Now this is a quote from Exodus 13 verses 1 and 2 where this where this ritual is given to Moses by God. And so this setting apart was not for priestly service since the priests only came from the tribe of Levi, Levi. It was simply a consecration of the firstborn to the Lord, whether male or animal, the firstborn was consecrated or sanctified to the Lord. Now this consecration or sanctification of the firstborn male to the Lord is one of the reasons why the firstborn had such a, an esteemed position within the Jewish family and had so many unique privileges passed on to him. He was consecrated to the Lord, therefore he had a special role and responsibility within the family. So since Jesus was not being set apart for priestly service, there was a requirement prescribed in the Jewish law for a sacrifice to be paid. Verse 24, And to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was another part of the sacrifice that needed to be offered or paid that Luke does not mention, and that is the five shekels of silver for the male who was not entering into priestly service. Luke does not mention that, but he does mention the animal sacrifice. Now the typical sacrifice for the firstborn male who is being consecrated to the Lord is a one-year-old lamb, but for those who were extremely poor, a provision was made for two young pigeons. And since this is the sacrifice that Joseph and Mary offered, it indicates that they were, in fact, extremely poor, that they likely had a very extended and unexpected stay in Bethlehem, which, which would simply magnify their lowly means. Now, what is a part of our Christmas story is the appearance of the Magi, who are recorded as coming to visit Jesus in Matthew chapter 2. But there's a couple of clues in Matthew chapter 2 that give an indication that the Magi appeared probably several months after Jesus was born. It says in Matthew 2 that Joseph, Mary, and Jesus were in a house now. They weren't in the barn or in this place that would harbor animals. The gifts that were given to them, the gold, the frankincense, and myrrh, were incredibly Worth, worth, uh, excuse me, were incredibly valuable, and they would have enabled Mary and Joseph to offer something other than the two turtle doves. They would have been able to afford a lamb, but the gifts that were given to Joseph and Mary would instead fund a very costly trip 
when Joseph and Mary and Jesus would have to flee to Egypt after King Herod gave the order to kill all unborn, excuse me, all male babies under the age of two in the region of Bethlehem and beyond. So there's a couple of clues that indicate that Joseph and Mary were still very, very poor, that the Magi visited much later, and that was what was, enabled them to go to Egypt as they fled from Herod. And so they offer all that they have and all that they are required under the law, and that is the two turtle doves to complete the fulfillment of the law as they brought Jesus to the temple for his consecration. So Jesus has been sacrificed. He has been given his name, the purification of Mary and the fulfillment of all the laws a part of the consecration of the firstborn male has been fulfilled. And now we turn our attention to number two in our outline, and that is fulfilling the promise. Perhaps the greatest promise God has made in all of his word is the promise of redemption after the fall. Israel had placed its hope in the Messiah But there was only a small remnant of faithful people who would realize the fulfillment of this promise that God had given long, long ago. In the first chapter of Luke, we have the mention of Zechariah and Elizabeth, the parents of John the Baptist, and they were considered to be righteous people, a part of the remnant. Joseph and Mary were chosen to be the parents of Jesus, indicating that they were also a part of the remnant, considered to be righteous by the Lord. And now we are introduced to an old and faithful priest. We're introduced to Simeon. And this passage is going to show us five significant things about him that will indicate that Simeon is a part of this faithful remnant. The first thing that we see here is his character. Verse 25a, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout. It's interesting that there is absolutely nothing known about Simeon apart from his inclusion in this incredibly significant passage of Scripture. Simeon was a very common name, but this Simeon had a very uncommon character as it spoke to the wealth of Jewish people of the day. Luke uses two key words to give us an indication about the character of Simeon. The first one is that he is righteous. That word righteous in its most root form means innocent. It doesn't mean that Simeon is without sin, but it means that Simeon was blameless before the Lord. Luke uses this word to communicate an incredibly high moral and religious standard. As I mentioned just a moment ago, as it speaks to Zacharias and Elizabeth, we read in Luke 1.6, they were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. In reference to Joseph, Joseph, who took charge to bury the body of Jesus, as recorded in Luke chapter 23, verses 50 and 51, Luke says, And a man named Joseph, who was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, he had not consented to their plan and action to crucify Jesus, a man from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who was waiting for the kingdom of God. And then Luke would use the same word to speak of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, 
Verse 22, Cornelius, a centurion, a righteous and God-fearing man, well spoken of by the entire nation of the Jews, was divinely directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and hear a message from you. So in each instance, Luke uses this word righteous to indicate a unique love and commitment to God. Luke did not use this word indiscriminately. He used it very, very specifically to give an indication that these individuals who this word is attributed to are very likely a part of this very special remnant of Israel. The second word that Luke uses is the word devout. Devout means reverence towards God. It conveys the idea of being careful to obey and honor God so as to lead an exemplary life before others. If you remember in our lengthy study so far in the Gospel of John, the religious leaders of the day considered themselves to be righteous and devout, but Jesus would never use those terms to describe them, and Luke would not either, knowing the true spiritual nature of those religious leaders. So used together, this word righteous and this word devout, it is clear that Simeon was a rare breed in the circles of Jewish religious leadership. Simeon may not have been a Pharisee. He may not have been a Sadducee. He may not have been part of the scribes. He may have just been a simple priest, but it was very, very clear that Luke held him in incredibly high regard with the usage of these two words. The second thing that we see in the life of Simeon, not only his, his character, but also his hope. Verse 25b, Simeon was looking for the consolation of Israel. And what that means is he was eagerly awaiting the coming of the Messiah. The consolation of Israel means the comfort or the encouragement of Israel. This comfort sought by Simeon for himself and for his people would only be realized in the coming of the Messiah. It was common in Jesus' day for rabbis to refer to the Messiah as the comforter. However, they were looking for a political deliverer, one who would deliver Israel from her enemies and restore the rule of David's throne. But Simeon, the faithful remnant, are looking for spiritual restoration. They're looking for spiritual redemption. And they are looking for their salvation. The Jewish religion was steeped in tradition and legalism. It was filled with hypocrisy and compromise. And the faithful remnant longed for the inauguration of spiritual restoration that would be a part of the Messianic age, not a political restoration that would, that would overthrow the Romans and reestablish the throne of David. The faithful remnant... And the religious leader of Simeon's day and then of Jesus' day were looking for the Messiah to do two very different things. One was steeped in physical, the other was steeped in spiritual. So Simeon is looking for the consolation of Israel, for the spiritual restoration of the people, that which would be the fulfillment of God's promise from ages and ages ago of the one that would bring spiritual restoration. The third part of 
of Simeon's life that we see here, the significance is in his anointing. Verses 25c and 26, it says, And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. The anointing is very simply communicated to us by this, the Holy Spirit was upon him. Simeon was unique because of the work of the Holy Spirit in his life. This work of the Holy Spirit could not and would not be attributed to the religious leaders of the day who were fighting to hold on to man-made tradition, who lived lives of hypocrisy, who were legalistic, who burdened the people with a religious expectation that could never ever be fulfilled. But Simeon had the Holy Spirit upon him. So in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit convicted people of their sin. The Holy Spirit prompted them to repentance. The Holy Spirit gave eternal life. He elicited faith. He drew the people into an intimate relationship with God. And apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, even in the Old Testament, no person in any age could ever be justified or sanctified or empowered for service. Neither could they understand Scripture or could they pray in the will of God. In the Old Testament, the presence of the Holy Spirit was with believers, but now in the New Testament and after the resurrection of Christ and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was going to be in believers. A very specific distinction where the Holy Spirit was with believers and now He is going to be in believers. So the Holy Spirit has told Simeon at some point in his life that he would see the Lord's Christ, the Messiah, before he died. We have no idea how or when the Holy Spirit told Simeon this, but this revelation was an indication of God's work in his life, and this revelation certainly gave unique direction to his life. I would imagine that Simeon would have lived in a constant state of joyous expectation, knowing that each new day might be the day that this promise was going to be fulfilled and he was going to see for himself the long-awaited Messiah. The knowledge must also have had a sobering effect on him, motivating him to live a life that would be exemplary before the Lord and an example to all who observed him. That day, that long-awaited day, had finally come. Verse 27. And he, Simeon, came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law. And so on this divinely appointed day, God has directed Simeon to go to the temple. This is not the inner temple. It's not the Holy of Holies. It is the outer temple. It is likely the court of women since Mary is there. And this is where Mary and Joseph and the baby Jesus are going to meet with Simeon. And Simeon is going to see the Messiah with his own eyes. It was the custom of the law, which is referenced here, which is also what is referenced earlier in our study of this passage, that Joseph and Mary are bringing Jesus for his consecration to the Lord in the temple. 
And so they're bringing Jesus for the fulfillment of this law. It is here that this divinely appointed day has finally come that Simeon is going to see with his very own eyes the long-awaited Messiah. The fourth thing that we understand or learn about Simeon is this, his proclamation. Verse 28, Then he took him into his arms and blessed God. There's no way to know what Simeon expected on the day that he would meet the on the on the day that he would meet the Messiah, just as God has promised him. But I find it highly unlikely that Simeon expected to be holding a baby in the temple, and that this little baby would be the Messiah that the nation of Israel had looked for all the way back to the days of Abraham. Luke doesn't tell us how, but in an instant, Simeon knows this is the fulfillment of Israel's consolation, the fulfillment of God's promise to him. And in response to this, he simply blesses God. I would imagine that there would be tears of joy and thankfulness, that there would be sobs of relief and anticipation as Simeon holds this little baby in his hands and knows that this is the Messiah of the nation of Israel. Simeon's proclamation is divided into three pieces. Letter A, he says, I'm ready to die. Verse 29, he says, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. It is very possible that Simeon has been waiting for this his entire adult life, having received this revelation as a young adult or when he entered into the priesthood, we don't know when he was told he would see the Messiah. But he's, he has spent the majority of his life waiting for this moment to come, and it has finally come, and he simply says, I am ready to die because you have fulfilled your promise to me. We know that Simeon is an elderly man, And he probably envisions that his life is about to come to an end because this promise that God has made to him has now been fulfilled. And because so, Simeon is ready and willing and able to depart in peace. The second part of this proclamation, letter B, he says, I've seen your salvation. Verse 30, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Now Simeon may not have known precisely how Jesus would provide salvation to the nation of Israel, but it is likely he expected more than this baby to just grow up to be a physical ruler. It is clear that Simeon expected something other than the physical ruler and the two verses that follow, because as we're going to see, that Jesus is going to provide salvation And as a part of this, it's letter C in our proclamation. Jesus is going to provide salvation for all peoples. Verse 31, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. My eyes have seen your salvation, which you prepared in the presence of all the peoples. Not just for the Jews, and not so that the Israelites could rule over the hated Gentiles and rid Rome of their physical rule over the nation of Israel in the here and now, 
But verse 32 tells us that this salvation for all the peoples is a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. The hated Gentiles are included in God's plan of salvation. Now, if you remember through your Old Testament history, the Gentiles or the pagan nations, any nation that was not Jewish in its ancestry, these Gentile nations were guilty of contributing to the idolatrous ways of the Israelites by worshiping other gods, enticing them to intermarry with their women, imposing upon them values that were contrary to their own beliefs. And so the Jew could very likely say, all that ails our world can be attributed to the Gentiles, and we are longing for the day when we can rule over them and stamp them out. And so in the Jewish mind, There was no room as a part of the messianic expectation that the Gentiles would be included in that, even though the Old Testament is filled with an indication that that kind of attitude was not accurate. We read in Isaiah 42, verse 6, I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness, I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you, and I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations. The messianic rule was going to be a light to all of the world, not just to the Jews. We read in Isaiah chapter 60, verses 1 through 3, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness will cover the earth, and deep darkness the peoples. But the Lord will rise upon you, and His glory will appear upon you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. You can see the interchangeable nature that exists here between the usage of light and glory. What the Jews had stubbornly and sinfully thought was to be salvation for them and them alone. God had ordained in eternity past to be the same salvation that would be distributed to all of the world. If we look at the very beginning of the covenant that God made with Abraham in Genesis 17 verse 4, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you will be the father of a multitude of nations. The Jew rightly and proudly attributed their ancestry all the way back to Abraham, but Abraham was not just to be a father to the Jew, he was to be a spiritual father to a multitude of nations. And if you're not a Jew, then you're going to be a part of a different kind of nation. And nation means people. And so it's very clear from the beginning of the covenant God made with Abraham that the salvation that he was going to offer to this unique people, the Jews, was also going to be shared amongst all the peoples of the world. A spiritual father to many different people groups as they would come to faith in Yahweh through the ministry of this long-awaited Messiah. The Messiah would be a light to the Gentile world, just as he was going to be the glory of Israel. Verse 33 goes on and says, And his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about Jesus. Now they've already been amazed at what they've heard at the announcement by Gabriel. 
They've already been amazed at the things that were said about him at his birth by the shepherds. And here they are again being amazed at what they're hearing this faithful, godly priest by the name of Simeon say to them. And so not only do we see this proclamation that Simeon makes, we see lastly, number five, his warning. Verse 34 and 35, Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. And a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. So the joy that Joseph and Mary were experiencing as they had brought their baby to the temple for his consecration. These amazing things that were being said by Simeon about the baby. This has now been very disturbed by this prophetic warning given to them by Simeon. This prophetic warning is a foreshadowing of the opposition that Jesus would face as the Messiah and an indication that heartache was on the horizon for Mary. Jesus was appointed for the rise and fall of many, and as such, there would be judgment and blessing. Jesus is the one who determines the eternal destination of all people. Those who reject him will fall into judgment, but those who believe in him will rise to eternal life in heaven. The opposition to Jesus would be so severe that Mary's soul will be pierced. It's a foreshadowing of her sorrow when she will, in 30-some years, see Jesus hanging on the cross, breathing his last. As the Messiah, Jesus knows the thoughts and hearts of all mankind, and he will reveal them at the end of their days. Every time... This phrase is used in the Gospel of Luke, knowing the hearts of man. It is used in a negative sense. And so there is this prophetic warning that Jesus would stand as the one who would bring about the judgment of many and the blessing of others. And Simeon is giving a prophetic warning about the kind of heartache that the Messiah was going to bring to Mary, his mother. And we won't study this in the Gospel of Luke, but in just a a few short verses, we're told about Jesus' journey to the temple. And when Joseph and Mary and the caravan had gone back, Jesus was nowhere to be found. And when they came back frantically searching for him, he said, Why are you so concerned? Why did you not know that I would be in my father's house about my father's business? And even then, at about 12, Jesus, there's the separation between Jesus and Mary and his family as he was about to set out on fulfilling the eternal plan of redemption that God had called him to. It was in Jesus' earthly ministry that he referred to his mother Mary as woman when he turned the water into wine at the wedding in Cana. There's also the indication when he was asked, should we look after your mother? And he said, who, are, who is my mother and who are my brothers? So there's always been this separation in Jesus' life from his family as he was the Messiah, 
the one who would be the rise and the fall of many. This is told to them by this priest Simeon. And of course it comes to pass that the little baby Jesus in the manger didn't come to be the the light of Joseph and Mary. He came to be the Savior of the world by offering up his life as a ransom on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. So we see the miraculousness of the announcement of Jesus' birth. We see the miraculous nature of his birth to a virgin in the city of Bethlehem as prophesied by Micah. We see this ominous warning that Jesus was going to fulfill the role of the Messiah, the light to the Gentiles, the glory of Israel, and the rise and fall of many. The gift of Christmas is our salvation through Jesus the Messiah, the fulfillment of God's long ago promise of the redemption of mankind. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for all that we know about the birth of our Savior from the miraculous announcement, the miraculous birth, the the prophetic utterances by Simeon, the fulfillment of all that you had called him to do through his earthly ministry, culminating in his death on the cross. Father, how we give you thanks for what you've done for us through Christ. God, the gift of Christmas is not just about what we do around the tree with our family and friends. It's about the eternal destination of mankind. It's about what we do with the baby who is the Messiah, whether we will receive him and give him our heart, our life, by faith be joined to you for all eternity, or in hardness and in difference and in spiritual ignorance reject him and await our judgment when our days are up. Father, thank you for removing the blinders from our eyes. Thank you for allowing us to know the truth. Thank you for setting us free. Thank you for the hope that we have in this one who was born in a manger, who was exalted as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who is the one who sits at your right hand, ruling from heaven above even now, the one who will one day come again. We give to you our very thanks for the greatest gift we would ever possibly know, the gift of Christ, our Lord and our Savior. May we give back to him what he is worthy of and what he is due, our very lives, as a response to this gift he's given to us. We give you thanks for all you've done for us and pray that you would find us to be faithful to live this out as best we can all the days of our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name.